voice ripped me open, spelled out a willingness to meet an end I suddenly wasn't ready to face yet. I pulled Angela back as a horse in the crowd kicked its legs into the air, its muscles pulled tight against its skin as it went wild. The police had shot at it with their rubber bullets. We could die here, I thought, and it could mean nothing. You are listening to PIN America's Works of Justice podcast. I am Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager of Editorial Projects for Prison and Justice Writing, which for over 50 years has amplified the voices of thousands of writers who are creating while incarcerated. Works of Justice spotlights key figures, writers, and artists who are reshaping the conversation on mass incarceration, advocacy, and justice in the United States. In this episode, PEN America's Nicole Shawan Jr., Deputy Director of Prison and Justice Writing, speaks with Prince Shakur about his debut memoir, When They Tell You To Be Good. I am currently uh, in Philly. I'm living in West Mount Airy. I'm staring into a cluster of about six or seven lush tree crowns, tree tops. I have some sandalwood burning in the background in my hallway and in my reading room slash office area. I have some oil, uh, some frankincense and myrrh burning. And it's just really nice like to have... Um, my smell sense kind of going off right now. Can you tell me where you are and where you're grounded at and what the vibe is? I am currently crashing at a friend's place, one of many places I've been crashing at. There's a lot of wood panels in this apartment. There's a lot of little plants around. Uh, I just had some coffee. I lit an incense in the background not too long ago. I'm just very much in a period of transition and a period of having lots of conversations with friends about what transition or change can mean. But yeah, I'm definitely in a very safe, comfortable space, which is good after doing lots of traveling. Oh, I'm so happy that you have that. You can be grounded for a bit after being in like liminal space and after being transported from one place to another, I'm sure frequently with this book getting ready to drop. Let me start, Prince, by pouring some love on you, if you don't mind. I want to thank you for penning and pushing into the world when they tell you to be good. As a queer Black poverty-born carceralized femme, your memoir, your debut, really serves not only as an affirmation, but truly as a reflection, right? A wonderful, accepting, celebratory reflection that I so seldom get to witness, read, and hold. So thank you for this gift to community. Now that I've said that, I'd love to know why memoir? You know, why debut with a memoir as opposed to an autobiographical novel or work of fiction not rooted at all in in your lived experiences? First, thank you for the praise. It means a lot to me. I knew writing this, I knew I wanted it to reach other Black people, other people in the diaspora. So it, I don't know, it's just, it means a lot to me. But um, 
To your question, I think after college, I came up on writing a lot of nonfiction. I did a lot of blogging. I had a travel blog that I wrote for a while, and I was just kind of trying to figure out how to write about <clears throat> these experiences that I was having traveling and being Black and queer and a lot of things that felt very necessary for me to kind of reflect and unpack because I knew that I was kind of trying to carve out a life that I hadn't really seen before other than maybe a writer like James Baldwin. And I graduated college in 2015 and in 2016 is actually from that excerpt that I read about going to Standing Rock for about a month. And it was around that time that I got the idea to write this memoir because I was feeling a big sense of mortality, like the 2016 presidential election was happening. I disrupted a Bill Clinton speech. I was just thinking a lot about mortality and my father and what it means to be Black and radicalized. And I was reading a lot of Black memoir. And I got a lot of, a lot of strength from the books that I was reading, but I also kind of really desired something that spoke more to my experience. So on one level, I knew that I wanted to write a book that I had been searching for. And it's kind of like what writers say, if it's not out there, uh, create it. And then on another serious level tied to that period of time is like, I had a really deep sense of mortality. I experienced a lot of police violence with a lot of other water protectors in Standing Rock in North Dakota. I remember saying to a lot of people around that time, and I also wrote about it in the book, but I kept saying like, if I continue living in this radical way, if I continue fighting the system, I had the, the sense that I was going to die by the time I was 30 or 33. Um, and a lot of that is also tied to my father. And so it's all of those things. But in a big way, I wanted to write this book as a sort of gift back to myself as a kind of record keeping of this blueprint of how I've lived my life, and maybe it could help other people. And I really wanted to write about my father, who I kind of consider the first big mystery of my life. And so taking the time to navigate him on the page. I think it gave me a lot of courage that I wouldn't have had otherwise to tackle some of the things that I talk about and write about in this book and I had to grapple with personally. So it's kind of all of those things. And for me, I hope that this book gives other young people permission to kind of do the same, to write their histories and to get rid of a lot of the stigma around a lot of the things that we can experience when you're from an immigrant family or you're queer or Black or you grow up in the inner city, whatever it may be. I think there's a lot to like mine and collect in young people's histories and experiences, even if it is all seemingly on the internet right now. But I think there's an interior life that young people deserve to explore. You know, from the moment that I picked up your book, Spine, and I cracked it open to the first page, I couldn't let it go. Like it, it really captured and held and captivated me um, because I think to your point, there was so much interiority happening that I could feel the energy of discovery within it, page by page, line by line. Publishers Weekly has described when they tell you to be good as a searing account of self-discovery in the face of structural oppression. And really that description I think is spot on, truly. What strikes me almost immediately in your memoir is the chronology. When they tell you to be good is presented in this nonlinear prose wherein chronology is queered, defying, I think, traditional confines 
oppressive structures of its genre while addressing the structural oppressions that you've had to bend and contort yourself through in order ultimately to find, I think, liberation, to, to find freedom. Your work with time, uh, it's bending, it's breaking, it's remixing, if you will, ushers the reader along in a way that I think requires a great deal of trust that you earn, Prince, for sure. I'm curious, why did you make the structural and style decisions that you did when crafting this work? I mean, immediately uh, editing with Hanif Abdurraqib lent its way to a lot of that. Originally, this book was in chronological order, and there may be one or two chapters that I think I put out of order, but what we talked about while editing this book was how he was interested in the notion of mini memoirs or sections that explore kind of different topics or themes. So with that kind of thought in mind, I got to have a lot of fun about looking at the sort of chapters out of order and seeing what is illuminated when you put different chapters alongside each other. And so when I look at the book now, I really see that there's one section to me that kind of deals with bodily autonomy. There's another section that specifically kind of deals with coming of age and carcerality and navigating that. There's another section that kind of deals with navigating living a politically radical life and where that can take you. But for me also, what this new form does and it achieves is kind of the notion that no matter where you are in the world, these structural issues, whether internal or external, can still follow you. You can still go all the way across the world and feel desired or undesired or feel empowered in your Blackness or disempowered. And so queering the chronology and putting different things alongside each other, it raises to me the central question of what are we born with and what do we unlearn as we go through our life. What I really love is that I look at some of the younger sections of this book when I'm a child and I read some of the older ones and I realize that that was the same person. It was just a matter of what the world had taught me in between those spaces. And so I think showing the kind of scale of the places that I've traveled and been to and then the sort of markers of time, whether it's it predates my life or it's during my life, I think it kind of shows that these issues are still at play on an intergenerational level and within a singular person's life. That to me is like a really exciting thing that I hope people that read this book can engage with because every time I go through it, I feel like I'm also like re-amazed. I'm like, oh wait, putting that next to there? Like really, I don't know. It, it, it lets me know some of the feelings I had when I was younger are valid because they're also still there now in some ways. Yes. Listening to you talk about the process of, you know, getting in there and remixing the work alongside Hanif, you know, I think about we're artists, we sensitive about our shit, right? But like, how was that process of saying, okay, no, 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 but actually this is Hanif Abdurraqib, Hanif knows what he's doing. And I believe this is the first acquisition while he's been in the role as our Tin Houses executive publisher. Yeah. How was that experience of actually going through the work and re-envisioning it with Hanif? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of different things. I mean, I don't know if people know generally about submissions, but submissions is when you have a literary agent and your literary agent tries to sell the book. Before working with Hanif on this, I was on submissions for seven months. And I mean, when you're a first-time author, your first time doing anything, I think things just 
reach you by surprise, but I was, I cried a lot during submissions. I cried a lot because you get a lot of no's and I went on submissions in 2021. And so it was after 2020 when all these sort of calls for diversity and own voices and all these other things were happening in the literary world. And so I went on submissions kind of with this sort of skepticism about the literary industry, but also thinking like, maybe they'll put me on. And I think experiencing rejection in the way that I did before Hanif reached out to me and was like, I want to read your book. I want to see if it's a good fit for Tin House. And I feel on one level, having written under him, I've written a few essays with him as an editor for Level Magazine, and I wrote an essay for 68 to 05, his music playlist website. And I think on one level, he learned to trust me as a writer and what I'm trying to pursue in my writing. And I also learned that he really wants artists and writers to express themselves in the way that they want to. And so when he was like, I want to announce to buy this book, we're going to need to edit it really quickly. And I have some ideas for me. It also meant a lot because I guess here's the other thing I was on submission and I actually got a book offer for this, but it was from a white man who offered me a thousand dollars and through the conversation with him, I felt that he hadn't really read the book because he basically was like, oh, I just want to publish it as is. I mean, with Hanif, what I really respected is that he respected me enough to have ideas and feedback and things that he thought could make this book shine more. And I really felt that he believed in what I was trying to do and he trusted me. I think when you are from a marginalized background or you're from a background where there's a lot of gatekeeping that you have to go through it's really easy to be tokenized and to be taken for granted and to be purported as this sort of genius. What I want in my publishing career and my literary career moving forward is just people that really respect my work, that read it closely, and that have meaningful ideas or feedback. For me, that process is exciting. It's not like I'm so attached to any particular thing. Like, of course, there are things in this book that I didn't want to remove and I did want to keep, and then that's still there. But for me, it was just really humbling. It was really moving. And seeing the way that the book could change form, working with an editor that really had read it closely, I think it just gave me a lot of more respect for revision. Like I think revising this book definitely challenged me as a writer and it showed me that when you finish the first draft, like your relationship with the book or the text isn't over. It's a continuous process of discovery. And I think Hanif definitely helped me understand that and navigate that in a way that let me know that my work was respected. And so it was a really affirming experience. Do you mind reading the first paragraph of your book? Yeah, sure, sure. I was 19 years old and traveling cross-country when my mother told me I'd die soon. Like a man lunging out of a car and away from attackers, I stood in the antique shop in Montana, frozen by the cracking sound in my chest. It was the second time in five years that my mother brandished my father's murder like a long and rusted machete. Is a mother's heartbreak worse than the heartbreak that she gives her son? Mm. How can I put your book down after that? There's no way, right? There's no way, like so brilliantly crafted. But I am curious about why that decision. The reader enters the memoir in your mother's voice and essentially in a reoccurring threat that she's dished against you, right? conform or be murdered like your biological father. Can you talk about 
why that's the entry point for us readers? Yeah, um, thank you for that question. This beginning to the book is different than what I had always kind of conceived of, but both beginnings are very similar in the sense that I wanted to drop the reader in a place of understanding that for me as a young Black queer person, there is always this this feeling or thought at the back of your head that you could be gone at any moment, that death is kind of this ever-present force. I feel like in any person's life, there are also another set of factors that can bolster that, that can strengthen that. And I really wanted to drop the reader there because that first chapter in a lot of ways to me is about me reckoning with mother figures. And so that first chapter deals with my best friend's mother and her um, finding out that she has cancer and how I kind of contend and grieve with that and how that relates to my own feelings and experiences towards my mother. And I really wanted to drop there because I think when we are confronting the possibility of people dying in our lives, it forces us to think about our own mortality. And also dropping the reader there, I think, to me, is telling the reader, like from a very young age, I've had different things said or told to me, different stories about my life or my father or what he was or what he wasn't. Those those stories, those words taught me that words matter, that words have an impact. And so I really wanted to drop the reader in a place where they could realize, like I've been told this narrative again and again by my mother. I've been told that if I don't act carefully or if I choose to do certain things a certain way, then I'm a reflection of him and I'm also a statistic. And I wanted to drop the reader in a place where you're confronted with that, but you're also confronted with having to navigate that, but also losing someone and and wondering if I can lose this person, then what does it mean when I'm gone? And does it mean what my mother has said, or can it mean something else based on the life that I've lived or the politics that I have or the things that I believe in? And so I think regardless of what the beginning was, I knew I wanted to show people that in order to really live, you have to be prepared to die. And you can take that in as many ways as you want. It can be like living dangerously or living recklessly or living with a sense of radicalism or revolutionary sensibility to you. Even just that central question as a Black person or that notion as a Black person, I think is worthy of exploring. And I like the intersection of Blackness and queerness and masculinity all being there at one point. And it's also an an undue burden. I think a lot of this book is about me untangling how do I navigate this burden? How do I make sense of it? And how do I get rid of it? Um, And so that's why I wanted to put the reader in that moment. Thank you for that. I mean, the reoccurring question for me in getting through the text was, you know, what do you lose? But also what do you gain when you live authentically? And you really serve that up for us. And I think a really delicious way you know, you just mentioned the topic of masculinity, which is woven throughout, right? So your memoir centers your queerness against this backdrop, specifically of outlaw masculinity, as well as the creation and ultimate criminalization of Jamaica's rude boy. I would love for you to talk with us a little bit about what those concepts are and why it was critical for you to weave them into your work. So I knew writing this book, I wanted to find some way to tell a sort of narrative or timeline of my father's life. And then partway through the book writing process, I learned about this uncle 
that people who read the book will learn. Um, his name was Cedric Murray. He was most wanted in Jamaica for a number of years. And he also, in some ways, wanted to be a writer. Um, and I knew when I was discovering and tackling these things that I, so on one level, I had been reading all these political memoirs and had been reading Black feminist theory. But what I was really hungering for was how do Black men write about masculinity? How do we develop a language around that? Because I've, like researching this book, I was reading Bell Hooks. I was reading Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver. I was reading Asada by Asada Shakur, just like all of these really moving, pivotal texts. But whenever I read it from a revolutionary man's perspective, I felt like it was usually very heteronormative, very straight, very steeped in like a very specific context. And I wanted to think about what it would mean to write about it specifically from my context. And I think also being in the family that I've been in, like I was born in the U.S. and my parents immigrated to the U.S. And so there's only so much ownership or claim I can take to really structural parts of Jamaican culture. Like, yes, I grew up there. I went to school there when I was five, but there is that separation. Like I can't claim the immigrant experience, but my mother can. And so I think looking at the specific ways that I unpack masculinity, that I unpack these notions of masculinity that have been in my family, that have affected the way that the men in my family treated each other, the way that they made money, the way that they were in relationships, whether they were abusive or not, whether they handled the family child rearing aspects of being in relationships and having kids. Looking at that on a structural level was really, really important to me. And Yes, I wanted to talk about it from my experience, but I also wanted to look at it on a socio-political level. And I think maybe that's like a bit of my journalism and creative nonfiction background. But yeah, I, I, I did a lot of research about Jamaica pre-independence and post-independence. And I started learning about gang structures in Jamaica when Britain was still in power, which was basically in a lot of places, gangs were a way to curb colonialism and to protect local poor communities. And then when independence happened, the gangs became ways for people to navigate this sort of newly independent kind of life and world where people were struggling to find jobs and the, the sort of economic stability wasn't there. And I kind of talk about it in the book as well, but there's like still some US colonial influence. And so looking at the rude boy as a kind of gendered entity that came out of independence Jamaica and how that developed over time felt really important to me because when I looked at the timeline of Jamaica's independence, I could see literally my mother's life and my father's life um, because I think, I, I believe that my, I, I, it's in the book, but um, um, it's either my mother or my father was born on the year that Jamaica achieved independence. And so I was looking at it in terms of like, how is gender constructed alongside an island's independence and how is how does the patriarchy affect that? And so I think looking at rude boy culture allowed me to kind of look at the, some of the psychology of my father and these uncles and these men that are really big figures in my family, but because they passed when they did or how they did, there's sort of a silence around them. And so how can I fill that silence with a sort of structural understanding of the politics and the gender and how those things crafted a kind of world where you either grew up in Jamaica and you're poor and you sell drugs or you try to find your little job and you don't make much, but you have to support your family however you can, or you try to make it to the US and you go to school and you get a job or you sell drugs, but whatever it is, it's always kind of trying to 
gain more resources so you can provide more for yourself or your family or your kids or the people in your community. And I think looking at that on a structural level, like what things have caused these economic conditions and how does gender lead people to survive these or to not survive them? It was a lot of different questions, but for me, it felt important for it to be steeped in like a timeline that went alongside my family's history and also be steeped in like historical events that very particularly shaped how men viewed and saw themselves as a part of Babylon or against it or something in between. The way you broke down, <laughs> you know, the rise of, well, first of all, like what outlaw masculinity is and then the rise and the necessity for the rude boy and then like how that becomes criminalized um, due to systemic oppression and, at, you know, through systemic oppression, I thought it was really, like, you did that really well, but it also helped to add, you know, multidimensionality and complexity to all of the men that you are honoring and centering this work from your, from your father, you know, to both of your uncles, all the way through to Dennis, your stepfather. Like, I think, especially in looking at Dennis's story, at least the story, the part of the story that you knew, so the part of the story that you bring the reader into, you know, now that we have this history of Jamaica, now that we understand the landscape of, you know, Rue Boys, it made Dennis, for me, read so much more human and complicated and like a like regular person in the way that I think we get denied so yeah. often. We mean like black poor people, period, right? In a way that we get denied. And I'm curious, I really wanna talk about Dennis a bit um, in this little bit of time that we have. You know, it's not until we get a little bit deeper into your memoir that you, you fully introduce us to who Dennis is and the circumstances of his departure from your life, which really is through incarceration. And I want to know about that. Like, what led to that structural decision, that storytelling decision to kind of like leave hmm, breadcrumbs, but not fully delve into Dennis's story a little bit later? Part B of this connected, not super directly, but it is connected, is how Dennis's presence and then abrupt absence impacted your decisions around or understanding of your queerness? Yeah, <laughs> that's an amazing question. Um, in terms of how I chose to introduce him to the reader and how he shows up in the story, on one level, in my life in general, it's kind of confusing to talk to people about my father figures because I say like, oh, my my stepdad, Dennis, but then my dad. And they're like, well, wait, you have two dads or you have one dad? And I'm like, my biological dad died. The other dad went to prison. So it's <laughs> on one level, I, I had to figure out like how to introduce these two figures and how to talk about how they've impacted me very differently, but also kind of in similar ways in terms of feelings of abandonment. But for me, I really wanted to honor what Dennis meant to me growing up as a kind of kinder man, as someone who I saw as kind of intellectual, who loved reading the news, who I admired in so many ways. And I also wanted to talk about what it feels like as a young person to kind of know that things are happening around you, but not to really have them acknowledged to you, whether it's the state watching or being told to call them something differently on the phone. And 
and and and a lot of those experiences were really hard to dig into but i felt like it was necessary to kind of unpack how i came into myself as a man as a queer man and 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 i think introducing him in a way that shows some of his softness and what i benefited from him how I benefited from him at an early age was important. And then to transition into kind of that murky gray area of this is someone that I love, but I don't really understand everything about them. And then that even goes further into, I didn't understand that I was living with someone that (laughs) could have gone to prison the whole time. And so the kind of cognitive dissonance of loving someone, but also them being someone that could easily be seen as a statistic or another black dude that's locked up. And so I think navigating all of that was really important. And it's also wild to navigate all of that alongside coming into your queerness. And so I just really wanted to get at the complexity of that and kind of write about what it feels like and and, and what's internal and external. And that felt really important. Um, and and to speak to his absence and how that affected my queerness and like i mean it's 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 it it affected so much i mean he went to to prison when i was 12 and he got out when i was 17 and those are pretty much kind of the most pivotal years for any teenager coming into himself and so while i was at home arguing with my mother while there were other family things going on i also had this extremely intense and fearful and protected inner world where I knew that whenever I came out that anything could go wrong and I had to be prepared to lose everything and that included any sense of emotional connection to him even though he was already incarcerated and so to me what it really shaped around my queerness from a very young age is that you have to be willing to lose everything in order to be who you really are and we can build these illusions around people based off of the nostalgia of what they did for us. But going to Jamaica after graduating high school and coming out to Dennis and dealing with his reaction in the way that it did. um, I mean, it's, 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 it's a compounding of so many different losses. Like I lost my father during the pivotal years of being a teenager. I started college without him. I learned how to shave without him. I went to prom without him. But it's also the question of if he was around, would I have felt just as much or abandoned in a, in, a, in a similar way because his reaction in the end wasn't good. And so it's kind of, it's a really tough game of loving someone, but also knowing that they can hurt you. And, and that hurt is both structural because of these carceral systems, but it's also extremely personal because it's intrapersonal. It's whether or not we even knew each other through the process of that carcerality. And I think that's something that carcerality and being someone that's young with a parent in prison really does. It kind of, it segments the emotional world that you're able to share with each other. And for me, being queer segmented that emotional world even more. Um, and and yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> to, the thing about the fact that I wrote about all this, I'm like, whew, it was a lot. It's a, it's a lot to think about and I and I wanted to do it as much justice as I could. Listen, the shadow of carcerality is is throughout the entire work. You know, everything from the shaming that comes with it, the invisibilization that comes with it, to the to the 
literal and metaphorical confinement that comes along with it. And I imagine that that's not an easy feat. I imagine that that was really difficult to write about. Even listening to you now talk about this, it's, you know, I'm I'm thinking about things, I'm putting pieces together that I didn't necessarily put together while reading the book, but I'm like, oh man, so this connects over here, this connects over there, making all kinds of connections um, that are kind of like firing off right now. And so I guess if that's my experience and I am reading about you and I'm reading about this, right? My final question really is just about the how, right? Like, how did you find the courage, the resilience, you know, all of that stuff, tenacity um, to complete not only deeply personal and honest work, but work that's also bringing up the most painful moments of your experience? How did you find that courage? How did you get through it? How did you do it? I wrote this book not because it was going to help me survive, because I think survival is something that under capitalism and white supremacy, we survive. But to me, the more ultimate question is how do we liberate ourselves? How do we unlearn the things that we need to do in order to reach a better place of enlightenment or to have a better world? And so for me, A lot of this book, although it was extremely painful and dredging up a lot of things, the far worse option was to remain silent or to not try to write about it or to be afraid to write about it or to not develop a language around it. Because when I was experiencing all of these things, my father's incarceration and learning things about my biological father's murder and traveling and feeling all these forms of dissonance and double consciousness, like what I really felt all throughout those experiences is that I wish someone could write something that could give me an inkling of how I'm supposed to feel or how I could feel. And so for me, what really drove me through this process is wanting to give myself an answer to some questions that really mattered to me, which is like, what does it mean to miss something that you never really had? What does it mean to to miss someone that if they were alive, they might not even want you in the way that you want to be wanted. And so I think asking those really difficult questions were really necessary for me to navigate coming out and dealing with the homophobia and the rejection, the abandonment that I did. And so with writing this book, I wanted to write about what it's like to experience that and what it's like to figure out what could be on the other side. And I think what I really get to in this book is what's on the other side is complex. It's sometimes painful, but it's having friends that feel like family. It's traveling around the world. It's about investing in political movements and social spaces where people are imagining and thinking about solutions. And it's not just about survival. It's about how can I live and make art in a way that liberates myself and the people around me or the people that come after me. I know that this book doesn't contain everything that I could ever say. I don't want it to, but I want it to be an act of permission for myself. And I wanted it to give other people permission to kind of explore similar or difficult things. Once again, I wanted to write this book in a way where I was like, I don't know if I've ever read about a Black queer person's experiences in this particular way at these intersections. And I think those intersections matter and they illuminate a lot of things that I think... I'm really excited to spend 
pretty much the rest of my life or whatever chapter of my life continuing to explore. It's especially why um, the last chapter of this book is is autofiction and it's about me imagining a reality where my biological father lived and I meet him because sometimes I think it is important to give some of those answers to ourselves um, that no one else can. And even writing this book, like I feel like I was writing this and I kept thinking, like I'm searching in all these places for my dad. And after writing this book, I realized like, like my father was always within me. I just had to kind of trust that and believe in that and to figure out what that meant for me. And I think that is what like one form of liberation is. It's not living in the stories that people tell you. It's figuring out what the more honest and enlightening and meaningful version of the story is because we can't just accept the answers that people give us. We have to find them for ourselves. This book is all of that. And it's, it was that for me. And I hope it's that for other people. Prince, thank you so much for sharing your heart, spending your time with me talking about when they tell you to be good. It's been a true pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this space. This episode of Works of Justice was produced by Malcolm Tariq. Music used throughout this episode was created by B.L. Sherrell and Fury Young of Die Jim Crow Records, the nation's first nonprofit record label for formerly and currently incarcerated artists. Members of PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Team include Jess Abalafia, Program Assistant, Nicole Shawan Jr., Deputy Director, Prison and Justice Writing. Moira Marquis, Senior Manager, Free Write Project. Kate Meissner, Director of Prison and Justice Writing. Robert Pollock, Prison Writing Program Manager. Malcolm Tariq, Senior Manager, Editorial Projects. You can subscribe to and hear previous episodes of Works of Justice on any podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. To learn more about PEN America's prison and justice writing, please visit pen.org slash works of justice. That's P-E-N dot org slash works of justice.